Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. It has really been described as the day that Austin lost its innocence. Prior to this murder, Austin was really thought of as almost a quiet college town, a relatively small city that was free of big city crime. But what happened on that night really changed that perspective, and it really was kind of an awakening for the people of Austin that, in fact, major crime, big city crime, and in this case, very horrendous crime, can come to town and that the city is not immune from it. It's 10 p.m. on December 6, 1991, in Austin, Texas. Holiday festivities are underway and Christmas wreaths and lights hang all over the city. On the outskirts of town, there's a frozen yogurt shop. It's a hangout spot, so even in December, customers flock to the popular shop. But as it closes at 11 that night, four young girls remain inside the store. Eliza Thomas, Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison, and um, the fourth victim uh, was named Amy Ayers. This is Tony Plohetsky. He's a senior reporter for KVU in Austin. Two of the girls actually worked in this showgirt shop. It was an I Can't Believe It showgirt shop. And the other two had actually been at a nearby mall that night. One of their sisters worked in the yogurt shop, and Amy Ayers was supposed to be spending the night or had planned to spend the night. And so they all went back to the yogurt shop because the sister of one of the employees and her friend Amy Ayers planned to get a ride home together that night. And so it was sometime after around 11 o'clock when the yogurt shop closed when authorities believed this murder happened. Around 11 p.m., an Austin police officer is driving his patrol car through the neighborhood when he spots a long column of black smoke rising from the yogurt shop. He calls in to report a fire, and soon EMS and fire trucks are dispatched to the scene. Emergency personnel rush into the building, dousing the flames as they enter. But as soon as they have the fire under control, they uncover something horrific. And it was a really ghastly, ghastly crime scene. Three of the bodies were stacked on top of each other. They had each been shot. They uh, were, were not dressed. They had been bound with their own clothes. Police began processing the scene and collecting evidence, but they run into an uncommon scenario that quickly cripples the investigation. One of the, the most devastating things that happened in this case, though, is that the Austin Fire Department showed up and doused the crime scene with water, not knowing that that it was in fact a, a murder scene. And so authorities unfortunately believe that a lot of the potential forensic evidence was 
loss due to not only the fire, but also the response to the fire. And so over the years, authorities have really been working with very little forensic evidence in this case. They did collect DNA from from the four victims, from the four girls, but unfortunately, they were not able to really obtain a conclusive DNA profile of any one single suspect. They're grieving for their classmates. Three of the victims were students at Lanier High School. Today, the students tried to deal with the loss and their pain together. This is probably the worst, most heinous crime that has happened in the city Students are encouraged to talk about their feelings. A team of counselors is at the school to help them. There are so many questions and fears now about things many of these teenagers never even thought about. With little forensic evidence, investigators turn to interviews. They want to know who interacted with the victims in the hours leading up to their murders. Over the years, authorities have have done an excellent job of actually building a roster of customers who had been in the yogurt shop that night. One of the interesting things that they've done as well is actually get DNA samples from some of those customers just to ensure that perhaps they were not linked to the crime. Um, Authorities have really spent years going back and retracing the final steps of those girls particularly the two at the who had been at the mall earlier that night, who they may have interacted with. Frank and Barbara erected a shrine in their home to honor the girls. The table is littered with pictures and memories. They still do not believe their girls are gone. They know someday the killers will be caught. Do they have any qualms about the death penalty? Not at all. Not at all. As long as it's slow and painful. And they're scared and they suffer. Yeah, because they, he scared my baby girls. Those people scared my baby girls. And my baby girls <clears throat> would not have hurt anyone, ever. This case was so famous here locally and across the country, really, um, that a number of people actually raised their hand and said they were the ones um, responsible. And police had to spend a lot of time actually chasing down those confessions and then ultimately proving that there were no, was no way that these men who were confessing actually carried out the crime. And with no prime suspect and little evidence to move forward, the case soon turns cold. Well, the investigation in the years immediately after this went through multiple twists and turns. There were botched investigations by the Austin Police Department. At different points, they focused on a number of different suspects. Um, Ultimately, though, no one was conclusively linked to the case. It's almost a decade before the next break comes. It was in the late 1990s when authorities began really focusing on these four men who they ultimately filed charges against. Robert Springsteen, Forrest Welburn, Maurice Pierce, and Michael Scott. Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen confessed to the murders. And authorities will still tell you nearly 30 years later that they confessed to things that only the killer or killers could have known. They knew intricate details about the crime scene, including the placement of the bodies and the type of weapon that was used to carry out the murder. So authorities who are still investigating this case 28 years later will tell you that many of them who were inside the investigation still believe that 
those two are uh, the two who carried out the crime, along with possibly others. They implicated Forrest Welburn and Maurice Pierce as part of the investigation, and so that is the reason that charges were filed against those four. But again, the charges against Forrest Welburn and Maurice Pierce really didn't get off the ground. In fact, a grand jury declined to indict Forrest Wellborn fairly soon after his arrest. Maurice Pierce did sit in jail for some period of time before his charges were dropped. But authorities have said throughout this whole case that that they um, really do believe that the perpetrators that they arrested initially were, in fact, the perpetrators. But they've ultimately had problems proving that case um, for the past 15 years or so. Two of the four are found guilty. Robert Springsteen is sentenced to death, and Michael Scott is sentenced to life in prison. At first, the families believe they have gotten some measure of justice, but this story takes several bizarre turns in the years to come. Robert Springsteen received the death penalty, but then the Supreme Court ruled that you could not impose the death penalty on someone who was not 18 at the time of the crime. And so his death penalty sentence was actually uh, changed to a life without parole sentence. And then, several years later, Springsteen and Scott are released from prison, pending a new trial. The essence of why the cases against Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott were dismissed is this. During their trials, prosecutors, which they believed was legally allowed at the time, used each other's confession against each other. So they used Robert Springsteen's confession during Michael Scott's trial and vice versa. Prosecutors will tell you that they believe that that was legally allowed at that time. But later, a Supreme Court ruling in a separate case established that they could not do that, that it in fact um, violates constitutional rights to confront a person's accuser. And so it was because of that that the highest court in Texas, the highest criminal court in Texas, overturned their convictions and said, listen, if you want to take these guys back to trial, you can, but you can't use their confessions against each other in this way. But without those confessions, prosecutors say they really do not have enough to go forward with retrying Robert Springsteen or Michael Scott. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. When prosecutors attempt to take them back to trial in 2008, new DNA testing goes against them in the case. Authorities, although they had never been able to obtain a conclusive DNA sample, learned that science over the years had developed a way to extract male-only DNA from a sample. It's called YSTR. And so that YSTR uh, shows a family male lineage. So uncles, brothers, cousins, all share that same uh, YSTR, that same strand of DNA. And so authorities sent a sample from Amy Ayers' body to a private lab in Virginia that had built some expertise in extracting male-only DNA from a sample. 
They were thrilled to learn that the lab had, in fact, been able to extract male-only DNA from from Amy Ayers' body. But the problem for them is that once they compared that to all of the four men, all of the four suspects, it matched none of them. And so that became a real challenge for prosecutors in terms of trying to take Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott back to trial because they realized that they had this unaccounted for DNA sample. And of course, that would raise reasonable doubt with jurors about who actually carried out this crime. And so for a decade, really, authorities tried to figure out who was who DNA this was. And they took major steps and invested thousands of dollars to try to find the matching person. And they did so by collecting DNA samples from male customers who had been at the store that night. They did so by looking at yearbooks and trying to figure out male acquaintances with the women and then either covertly or or through voluntary contributions got DNA samples from those men. But again, none of, the, none of it matched uh, the sample from Amy Ayers' body. They also got samples, DNA samples from every male first responder who had been in the crime scene that night, wondering if there may have been some sort of cross-contamination. But in the end, they could never find a match to that Y strand of DNA. That all changed in 2017. An Austin cold case detective learned about a growing number of male-only DNA databases around the country. So he had this uh, sample that had been collected or analyzed by this lab in Virginia. And so he found a database in Florida at the University of Central Florida. It's called the National Center for Forensic Science. And so he uploaded the sample that he had, the, the profile that he had, into that database, and he got a match. And investigators at that point thought that the yogurt shop case was about to take a new and dramatic turn. They were very excited to learn that there was a match out there somewhere. And so they subpoenaed records from the, uh, the database in Florida. And they even got more excited because they found out that the matching profile had been uploaded by the FBI. So authorities got in touch with the FBI, hoping that they would be able to tell them everything possible about that DNA sample, where they got it, how they got it, whose sample it was. But then that began what has now been a nearly three-year standoff between the FBI and local law enforcement because the FBI would not answer any of those questions and, in fact, say that it is a violation of federal law for them to provide any of that information. Even though the biggest break in years is within reach, the FBI has stopped Austin investigators from pursuing this forensic tool. The FBI says, yes, we participated in a study conducted by the University of Central Florida Yes, we did give DNA samples to them for that study. It was a population study. They believe, the FBI believes, that they are legally allowed to do that, that federal law allows them to do that. They say, however, what federal law does not allow them to do is to release information about those samples. And so they say you can't backtrack it in that way, that Austin police investigators can't use that as a springboard then to try to work backwards to to get an individual's identity from those samples that were contributed to this database. The FBI says it's just not legally allowed. The FBI also says that, listen, 
Austin police, you're overstating the significance of this. There are hundreds or possibly thousands of men in the universe who may share that same strand of DNA, that same YSTR profile. But Austin police and local prosecutors here in Austin say, listen, this is the biggest break we've gotten in this case in years and years, possibly ever. And we're willing to do the work to, you know, go through thousands of names if we have to, to work backwards, to try to put um, as much information as we can together to try to figure out whose DNA this is and, and whether or not it was linked to the killer that night. The families of the victims and Austin police have been trying everything they can to broker a deal between the FBI and investigators. But so far, nothing has changed. The stalemate really has been playing out privately um, for quite some time. However, it has recent gotten, recently gotten some media attention here. It has also prompted uh, local Congressman Michael McCall, who is uh, a well-known congressman uh, from, from Texas, from the Austin area. He's a former federal prosecutor himself. Um, as we were rounding out and finalizing some recent reporting on this topic, he did send a two-page letter to the FBI urging them to urgently release anything they legally can to local investigators here in Austin. And there has been some conversation about, well, if it's the law that is legitimately standing in the way, perhaps it's time to actually change this federal law and alter it in a way that would allow yogurt shop investigators to to get the information that they need. In the meantime, the prime suspects remain free. Three of the suspects... Robert Springsteen, Michael Scott, and Forrest Wellborn have really tried to pursue private lives after this case was over. Maurice Pierce um, actually died in 2010 in a very violent clash with an Austin police officer. He had been stopped in northwest Austin for uh, possibly running a stop sign, but it soon escalated into an altercation with an Austin police officer in which he stabbed the Austin police officer in his neck, and uh, the Austin police officer did survive that attack, but he did shoot and kill Maurice Pierce that night. And the families are still waiting for justice for a crime that was committed almost 30 years ago. I think there'll probably be some relief to a certain extent, but no, nothing will make me feel better. The only thing that would help at the moment is Eliza coming in the door. That's the only thing that would make things better. This case happened 30 years ago almost, and so these parents are not young people anymore. When I interviewed recently Bob Ayers, the father of Amy Ayers, he said unequivocally that he will not die until this case is resolved, and he actually repeated that to me a couple of times during our interview. But the pain from talking to these parents is just so apparent. They feel as though they have had to relive this trauma time and time again and ultimately have no satisfying answers about what really happened that night and who did it. So here we have the FBI protecting the criminal who could help us in our murder case. And then I just felt like they just kind of abandoned us. And not only that, I got to thinking about it, but isn't it against the law to withhold evidence in a murder case? And we, that's all we've ever done is ask for help. And now that we found something, 
we can't get it. For Tony, he's not sure what'll happen to this case. I think it's an open question about whether or not this case will ultimately be solved. If you talk to investigators and family members, they will tell you that their hope really is dimming, that they have waited almost 30 years for answers that have really been elusive this whole time. Um, On the other hand, though, uh, authorities have uh, created a new team to go through all of the evidence and to look at all of the evidence and to try to find something that might further this investigation more. They say that to them, it really only takes just one break, one big break or one even small break to move this investigation forward. And that's been one of the reasons that this standoff with the FBI has been so extraordinarily frustrating to them. 